Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding As Pastor Jordan concludes his series on temptation this morning, our passage. For that sermon is found in Genesis 39, verses 1 through 21. It's page 33 of your Pew Bible. And then we'll also be reading 1 Corinthians 10:13, which is page 957 in the Pew Bible. Genesis 39, verses 1 through 21. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he was made overseer of his house. And he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, And over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But on one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I have lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard these words that his wife had spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. 
And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 1 Corinthians 10.13, page 957. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Thus, the reading of the Lord's word. Let us pray again. Gracious Lord, as we come to uh, this, your word, we have already confessed today the the need of the Holy Spirit to convince us that this is the Word of God. And even now, Lord, your Holy Spirit to convince us of uh, your Word, to convict us of it, to encourage us, to build us up in this Word, to apply this Word to our hearts, uh, that we might be like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when after the resurrection, when Jesus, after eating with them and teaching them and then leaving them after revealing himself, they said, were our hearts not burning within us as he spoke the word to us? Lord, you alone can make the word burn in our hearts. May it do so today. Lord, may it do so day in and day out. And we truly be like trees planted by rivers of water. We ask it for the glory of Christ. Amen. When you see uh, this example of Joseph makes us think, makes me think how many times have we not made the right choice in a time of temptation? How many times are we even being tempted and falling and hardly even realize that the battle is on? Uh, How was Joseph able to keep his head so well at this time? First Corinthians 10.13 says that God provides the way of escape. And we've seen that that's not simply that Joseph saw the door, you know, that the door was the way of escape, but that Joseph maintained a heart before God that prepared him for that moment. We saw how Joseph was not given to self-pity. Uh, Joseph did not succumb to despair, which could have caused him to plunge into sin, but he maintained a faith in God, an expectation of God's goodness, even as things got worse and worse in his life, even as he went from Potiphar's house on to prison. Even after doing the right thing and being thrown into prison, he still trusted in the goodness of God when everything seemed to turn against him. And last week we began to talk about his hatred of sin, how Joseph kept a sense of what was wrong and what was right. He kept his sanity, you might say, his moral and spiritual sanity as this opportunity, this temptation was set before him. Uh, We see his statement here as he rehearsed all of these things before her when she uh, offered herself to him in verse 8, rehearsing all that this man had done. And so however beautiful and alluring Potiphar's wife might have been, and However many natural desires as a young man he may have been coping with, you can tell from the narrative that he thought 
the thought of wronging Potiphar and sinning against God turned his stomach. How could I do? You can, you can get a feel for the, just the, the viciousness with which it struck him, the offensiveness of doing this thing. It's not, a, it's not self-righteous like, oh, I'm, how could you think I would ever do such a thing? You know, that kind of thing. But it's truly a, a heart response of the evil of it. How could I betray and abuse this man who's given me the greatest position in his household? That would be so wrong. He felt it. He saw it clearly. And he was right. It would have been. But in such a circumstance, we lose ourselves. We lose a sense of what is right, what is true, what is good. And so in a, in a sense, Joseph is saying, you mean he gives me the highest privileges he can? And then I turn around and basically mock him and spit on him by sleeping with his wife? How could I do such a thing? So he kept his spiritual and moral head about him. He maintained the strongest sense of what is right and what is wrong. He saw sin for what it is. He saw sin for what it is in its true colors. He smelled its stench. He saw its corruption. He feels how disgusting and offensive it is. And if we don't keep this this sense of what sin really is, and a sense of the beauty and goodness of submitting to Christ's will, the beauty and glory of Christ Himself, then in effect we begin to live like a drunk man Driving down the wrong side of the highway, which I've seen before at night. A man, years and years ago, a car careening down on my side of an interstate, and it was a drunk. And that's basically how Scripture describes us under the dominion of Satan. We don't see reality for what it is. And Paul, hoping a certain group of people will repent, in 2 Timothy 2, he says, hope that they will repent and come to their senses from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Literally, it does read that they will come to their senses from the devil. Or you might say that they would be sobered up from the devil. As though to be submitted to him is like a man on drugs who thinks he's about to fly off a 20-story building. So that when we leave a life of rebellion against God and submit ourselves to his grace and kindness in Christ, it's like we've left the morally insane, the spiritually insane asylum. And we're walking out the door and we begin to see reality. That's the way scripture views it. Joseph saw things as they truly were. He saw goodness as it truly was and what it would mean in that circumstance. The the madness of sin is underscored by the very nature of Satan himself. As Jesus is speaking of him, we just touched on this last week, but speaking to the Jews that were uh, set against him, opposing him, he says, you are of, this is John 8, Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And notice the two things he says about Satan. 
He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. Speaking of saying to Eve, it's okay, go ahead and eat, you won't die. Well, that was like murder, you know. He killed, he plunged the, the whole of the human race into death. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He spins them constantly. And so every temptation is from a murderer who is lying to us. A murderer and a liar. Now, to keep that in your head would do you and me a lot of good. This temptation is coming from a murderer and a liar. I really like the anglerfish. Fish lives on the bottom of the ocean. He blends in with the rocks, the coral, except for one little thing, a stem that goes up, and at the end of it is a little worm that goes like this. Stem looks like about this long. I hadn't seen one up close. but And I always think about what he's saying. What he's saying to the fish. He's saying, here's a worm. Here's a worm. And he's saying, I'm not, a, I'm not an anglerfish. I'm not going to eat you. Here's a worm. And that's all the fish sees, isn't it? Sees the worm. Now, you couldn't say the angler is a murderer, morally, okay? But he is a killer and he's a liar. He's a killer and he's a liar. And it isn't a worm and you're not going to eat it. You're going to get eaten. That's the reality. And so Satan, as good as things look, as sensible as they seem, as justified as it looks like to do this or to think this or to feel this, He is out for your death morally and spiritually. Uh, Thomas Brooks in the 1600s wrote this uh, great little book, uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, using that word schemes from Paul in Corinthians. And his very first device that Satan uses is he shows the bait and hides the hook. Every fisherman knows to do that. So that the fish thinks, I'm going to eat a minnow right now. That's what you want him to think. Satan wants you to think only about the thing itself. Not to think of consequences. Not to think of relationships. Not to think of what this means in the bigger picture of life. But simply to bite the bait. He has another device that Satan lessens sin. He lessens the gravity of it. He, he makes it look like it's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Listen to the uh, remedies, which, again, helps us see the true nature of sin. He says, the giving way to a less sin makes way for the committing of a greater sin. If we kept that in our heads, we'd think, now, this is small, but it could lead to the next and the next and the next. Keep your head about you, you see. Here's another remedy. Often there's most danger in the smallest sins. Or here's one. The saints have chosen to suffer greatly rather than commit the the least sin. 
They've chosen to suffer greatly rather than commit the least sin. Here's another remedy. There's more evil in the least sin than in the greatest affliction. And here's one that we spoke a little bit about in Sunday school. It is sad to stand with God for a trifle. In other words, you say, it's just a small sin. All the more. We talked about Adam and Eve, and sometimes it looks like, well, so much happened just because of one piece of fruit. I mean, one piece of fruit, the whole world falls into sin. But you get the point. God was not even worth a piece of fruit. The smallness of the sin accents the greatness of the sin. For such a small thing, you'll turn your back on God for this nothing? We gave up our whole relationship for God for a piece of fruit. Well, to maintain our heads, to see the reality of sin. I love this also. Here's a little parenthesis, but it's a, a beautiful section as well of his book. Satan's devices to keep saints in a sad, doubting, questioning, and uncomfortable condition. By causing, here's the device, by causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior, even to forget and neglect their Savior. Temptation comes at us in all kinds of ways. Here's another. By suggesting to sinners their unworthiness so that they can't be forgiven. Another temptation or device. By suggesting to sinners that Christ is unwilling to save them. You see, fundamental to Satan's strategy, as we've said, is don't trust Christ. First, don't trust his goodness and wisdom and power so as to obey him. Then if you do turn away from him, don't trust his goodness and wisdom and power to return to him. He likes to drive the wedge between us and Christ. First, that we break from him and then drives us away by accusations so that we wouldn't return and put ourselves under Christ's care. And... How do we get this sense? How do we maintain the the sense of reality? Well, we're going to talk about it a little more as we talk about the fear of God. But right here, uh, we go to the Word of God. This is what we've kind of emphasized in this Reformation uh, Sunday, talking about the Word of God. Well, in Psalm 119, 104, the psalmist says, "...from your precepts I get understanding..." Therefore, I hate every false way. So it is by not just knowing the facts of God's Word, but giving ourselves to that Word so that it begins to change our affections, so that our perspective, our view of life begins to be transformed and continually transformed. And we begin to hate, the psalmist says, every false way. Every false way by His Word. Or later in Psalm 119, in verses 127 and 128, he says, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. 
Notice, loving your commandments above gold and hating every false way. There's a correlation. A delight and a desire for that word and a hating of every false way. And so the great navigator verses, if you've done the navigator pack, um, we learned these uh, as a freshman in college. How can a, this is earlier in Psalm 119, all of this in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? With all my heart I've sought you. Do not let me wonder for your mere commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. So, the treasuring of that word, hiding the word in the heart is not just putting a verse or sticking information in your head. It is hiding the word in your being. It is, in the words of Paul in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ Govern you. Let the word of Christ rule in your hearts. And so, brothers and sisters, it's a simple thing, and, and I don't want it to sound just mechanical, but I do ask you how careful are you and how careful am I to give ourselves passionately to His word? Passionately to His word for it to shape us, to build our affections, to hone us and chisel us and Recreate us and renew and renovate us so that we hate every false way. But tied closely to that, of this hating of sin, is what Joseph says in the last phrase. He doesn't just say, how can I do this great wickedness against Potiphar, does he? Which would make sense. Because he's saying, this man's done all of these things. How could I sin against him in this way? Of course, it's understood that it would be a sin against him. It's, it's the evil that would be done in this situation that he's done so much for me. And then I would turn my back on him. But the last little phrase, and sin against God. It's the fear of God, maintaining the strong sense of the fear of God. And by that, we don't mean a dread of running away from God and not wanting God at all, the, the lack of fear or, or, or the, the dread or fear that the unbelievers have, but that fear of respect and honor, of awe, of joy, of praise, of admiration. The fear of God means that God owns the landscape of your life. And there is nothing else as important as He is to you in any given circumstance. That's why it's so hard to walk in the fear of God. That above all else, God and my relationship to Him, His grace and mercy to me in Christ, His righteousness and holiness and power and sovereignty, all that God is is what matters most to me in my life. The fear of God. It's the same kind of thing that David said, as you many of you know, in Psalm 51. Here he sinned against uh, Uriah in the most terrible way by taking his wife from him and having him killed. And yet he uses those words in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. And of course you might say, whoa, 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 whoa. I would say there's a little bit of sin against Uriah. Do you see the point? 
It's God's law. It's God's character that I've transgressed in this horrible thing that I've done to Uriah. And as he thinks about wronging Potiphar, what comes to the forefront is, how could I be so unlike God in this? How could I be such an affront to God? Because God would see this. God knows how unfair and wicked and to, for me to betray this man in this circumstance. How could I do this against God? And of course, therefore, the point of whether he would get away from with it or not, that doesn't even matter to him, does it? If I'm walking in the fear of God then what I'm looking at on the internet won't matter anymore if I'm alone or if my wife's there. It'd be the same thing. Because what matters most to me is that I'm in the presence of God. And I'm walking in the fear of God. And so, concerning the fear of God, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. It is hatred of evil. To respect and honor and adore and love Him is to hate and oppose anything that would oppose Him or be unlike Him. Pride and arrogance in the way of the evil and perverted speech I hate. He goes on to say in that verse. Later, in Proverbs 16.6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. There it is. How do you turn away from evil? How do I avoid evil? How do I walk in holiness and purity? By the fear of the Lord. Understanding who He is in all of His glory and majesty and goodness and grace and that He is with me. I've heard one man say one time, the fear of God is who He is and where He is. (laughs) Who He is and where He is. I'm in His presence and think of who this glorious God is. And so Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That one may turn away from the snares of death. It's not a a terrible thing, a dark thing, the fear of the Lord. It is a fountain of life. It's what helps set me free to walk in the pathway of life, to turn away from the snares of death that will be destructive toward me and other people. In Proverbs 23, 17, let your heart not envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. So, interestingly then, as you know, the the fear of the Lord, as Psalm 111 says, as Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. And in terms of what we've said of of our insanity, it's kind of like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of moral and spiritual sanity. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of true knowledge, the beginning of true wisdom. And so Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 7, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So that His beauty will trump the beauty of sin. So that, in a sense, we can say in the words of shout to the Lord, nothing compares to the promise I have in you. That's part of the fear of God. I'm in awe of the promise that I have in you. The hope and expectation of giving myself to your will. And there's nothing to compare to that. I walk in the fear of God. 
such a glorious, positive thing in our lives. And it's interesting in the Old Testament, the specific examples of, of obedience, especially in circumstances where you might not be found out. So Nehemiah says, the former governors laid heavy burdens on the people, uh, but I treated them fairly because of the fear of the Lord, Nehemiah 5.15. And here, Leviticus 9, 19.14, you shall not curse the deaf who won't hear you or put a stumbling block before the blind because they won't know who did it because you shall fear the Lord. See, the issue, he doesn't say put a stumbling block before the deaf They'd see it. They'd see you doing it. But in these things in which you would want to get away with it and you'd want to make a joke and laugh and mock at these poor people, you do not do that because of the fear of, of, of God. He says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. When a stranger sojourns with you, in a circumstance when they are weak and they are disinherited because they are in a foreign land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall fear God. And it goes on. If you're negotiating for land, if your brother becomes poor and he's under, uh, he's at risk, and you could do anything you wanted to to him, don't give him money at interest. Don't rule over him ruthlessly. You shall fear God. Same thing for leaders in fairness, to walk in the fear of God. The one who walks in the fear of God hates a bribe, it says. He hates it. Here's the person that loves it. You know, they see, hmm, a little more of that and see what I can do. And others are offended at the thought that I would do injustice to this man because you're giving me money? What? <laughs> see that, that there's, there's a... A sanity, walking in the fear of God. Quickly, and I've just mentioned these, but I hope they'll be encouraging to you. How can we maintain this fear? Number one, by our union with Christ. It says in Isaiah 11 that His delight, speaking of Christ, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And you're united to Him. His life is in you. This one who took His delight in the fear of God. He imparts that to us. And so, in the second place, by the grace of the new covenant, Jeremiah 32, He says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. In fact, He says, this is the good that I will do them. I will not turn away from doing them good. And you're like, okay, okay, good. good. What is it? What is it? What is it? What's the good you're going to do me? Money? Housing? What is it? What's this good? I'll put my fear in your heart. That's everything. That's everything. It's as though God says, Pow! Put my fear in your heart. I can do no better than that. That you would walk in the freedom and the glory and the comfort and the happiness of having me fill your horizon. Thirdly, by knowing God. I love in Genesis 31... He's called the God of the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. That's his name. It's that to know him, to truly have the word open up to you, to read and study, meditate, so that the glory of God breaks in upon you. You will grow in the fear of God. 
He is the fear of Isaac. He is an awesome, awe-inspiring God. He is a thrilling God, a breathtaking God. Has anybody ever seen the green flash that occurs on a sunset or a sunrise on the ocean? Anybody here? Okay, a couple of you have. You probably just shrugged your shoulders when you saw it. No big deal. Yeah, right. No. Okay. I've I've read about it and I've thought, would that? And what happens is the spectrum. You know, you get in red spectrum because of the way the Earth's atmosphere blocks out all the other light, so that you're just getting red on the edge. But there's a certain angle where the green spectrum pops out, and there's just a flash of green. So they say. And I would love to see that. I'd love to see the, um, I can't even remember how you say it, the Borea Aurealis or whatever that is, you know, in the northern light. Somebody will come up and correct me but afterwards, but <laughs> that Bore or Aurea, whatever. Um, <clears throat> but you see, the glory of God is like that it strikes on your heart. It brings all to your heart. In fact, it's described, the gospel is described in those terms in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, uh, He has shown in our hearts to see the glory of Christ. That's what happens. Something of the glory of Christ breaks in upon our heart. And you see, that's not just His righteousness. Of course it is, and His justice. That's revealed in the cross because you learn, how can I be friends with sin when sin crucified Christ? And so we all the more see God's righteousness and justice. And we all the more see, well, if Christ was under God's judgment when sin was upon Him, what's going to happen to me if I stand under my own sin before God? I mean, righteousness and justice breaks out on you, but boy, the love of God breaks out upon you through the cross in a whole new way. It's a revealing of the love of God, as John says. In Psalm 130, verse 4, though this phrase is not in the hymn we sang, it is in the original psalm. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Whoa! How does fear connect with forgiveness? You see... We are in awe of this God who would forgive us through the death of His own Son. It attaches us to Him. It fixes our heart more and more in affection upon Him because He would give His Son for us. There's forgiveness that you may be feared. And I think that's at the root of what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ controls me. That's almost to say, I'm governed by the fear of Christ. I'm governed by my awe for Jesus Christ who has so loved me. And obviously, knowing God and knowing His Word, they're just hand in hand. So uh, it's in union with Christ. It's through the grace of the new covenants by knowing God. And therefore, it's again by the Word of God. But this little thing you might go back and read. In Psalm 19... It describes the law in so many different ways. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure, using a different word each time. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. Now, he's not shifting to talk about fear as opposed to the word. It's a word that stands for and gets at what the word is. It's a term that gets at what... It's the, he's describing the word as the fear of the Lord. 
It brings about that fear in your life. It promotes that fear, that devotion. And so we give ourselves to it all the time praying, Lord, make my heart burn like you did with the two on the road to Emmaus. Oh, Lord, with Jacob, bless me, Lord. I will not let you go until you bless me. And finally, by joyful worship and fellowship with the people of God. Now, this is a great passage. Um, And those who want to always uh, show that alcohol is not wrong like to go to this passage in Deuteronomy 14. It's talking about the feast days. And in the feast days, he says, you go to the place that he will choose. You will eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and your oil, firstborn of your herd and flock. So there's feasting and celebration and worship at the feast of God. And he says, you shall, uh, if, if you're too far away to bring these things, then bring your money. And then you spend it for whatever you desire, auction or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. To what end? To what end? He says, so that you in that place, may learn to fear the Lord your God always. I love that. Rejoicing with the people of God, rejoicing in fellowship with the people of God promotes the fear of God. Because we're sharing in His goodness. We're rejoicing in His greatness together. And it promotes our fear. It promotes our being in awe of this good and great God. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we indeed find a way of escape because we walk in the fear of God and we hate sin because it is against this glorious God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for what you do in our lives and how through our union with Christ and the the new covenant, uh, through your word, through your spirit, uh, Lord, through uh, knowing you, through the people of God, worshiping and celebrating and fellowshipping with these dear people that we grow in our honor of you. We grow in our worship and admiration for you. Oh, Lord, bring about that fear in our lives according to your promise. Lord, you've promised in the new covenant. It must take place for we who trust in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we rest in you to do it and to overcome all else in our lives. For you're able to do exceedingly beyond all that we ask or think according to that power that works within us. We rest in you, Lord, and we admit how little at times we do fear you, how little of awe and respect there is in our life, how our minds can go be deranged spiritually and morally. Oh, Lord, save us. Continue to save us. And bring about your sweet fear in our lives. Thank you that you will do it according to your new covenant promise. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
Shall my soul 